Our Old Testament lesson comes from Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, hear now the word of our God. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in a quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, is, it, is a, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gathered. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone, from where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. 
Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Now, notice here in Isaiah 49, there are two leading characters. There's the servant, and there's Zion. The servant is a masculine singular, Zion is a feminine singular. And the servant is named Israel, but then also is said to be the one who will redeem Israel and restore, bring back the preserved of Israel. Isaiah is beginning to show us the need that, in fact, the whole Old Testament is pointing to, that we need the servant of the Lord to be the one who will come, and as Isaiah will continue to show, the one who will come and deliver Israel and indeed deliver all the nations. And then, and then Zion's voice comes in. So the Lord is saying to his servant, you will deliver my people, you will bring, bring me a light to the nations. But then Zion says, what about me? Here I am, forgotten, alone. And all through the scriptures, Zion, the city of God, the, the people of God, this is, it's not, it's not just Jerusalem, even in, certainly in Isaiah, the, the picture of Zion is already expanding out to see the heavenly Zion, the, the city of God. Is, this, is, this is the heart of what the picture of who Zion is. And, and these two pictures of the servant, masculine singular, and Zion, feminine singular, is, you, you, think it's, you know where this is going, Christ and his bride, but it'll be interesting to see how Paul uses these two images and these two pictures in his own ministry, in what he's doing with the Thessalonians and indeed in the whole of the coming of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Those of you who have born children will understand something of what Isaiah means when he says, can a woman forget her nursing child? If a woman forgets her nursing child for even a little while, there will soon be a reminder. So it's, it's impossible. How could a woman forget her nursing child? But the Lord says, even these may forget. So even if a nursing mother could forget her child, yet I will not forget you. God will not forget his people. Now, why does God have to say this? The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Zion, the city of God, feels forgotten. There are certainly moments in our life where it certainly feels as though God has forgotten us. God does not promise that everything will turn out the way we want it to. And that's where sometimes we go astray because we think that for God to remember us means that God will give us what we want. But as we saw back in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Because if you're delighting in him, if you're longing for him, if he is the one you want, 
that's what you'll get. You'll get the desires of your heart because the desires of your heart will be returned to where they should be. And so often our desires stray. What does God promise us? He promises us himself. Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own souls, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I I need to change the sermon title uh, after I had sent the bulletin in. In the bulletin it says, Sharing the Gospel and Ourselves. But I need to change that to sharing the gospel and our souls. Because Paul isn't talking about the self. He's talking about the soul. What does that mean? John Ortberg has an excellent book called Soul Keeping, where he objects to the idea that soul simply means self. Think about When we talk about self-care, or we talk about soul care. Wow, that's different, isn't it? Think of the difference between saying, I must take care of myself. Or, I must take care of my soul. What's the difference? When we say, I must take care of myself, the self stands alone. Isolated, only I can protect it. When I say, I must take care of my soul, my soul is in relation to God. The soul always stands before God. And so when we talk about soul care, it's always, there's always a vertical component. Self care maybe has a horizontal component. I mean, if you're a Christian, you can add a vertical component, but self-care by itself is simply the self curved in upon the self. It's about me. Soul care is about myself, my soul, in relation to God before him. 
This was brought home to me as I was reading John Chrysostom's sermon on this passage. Because when Paul says we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Chrysostom, who was preaching in Greek and reading the Greek, comments on this. For merely to preach is not the same thing as to give the soul. And I was like, wow. Wow. That's, yeah, that's a difference. To give your soul to somebody else? That's a very different thing than just preaching or even just like the self. Preaching the gospel is a great and glorious thing. But Paul says that they were pleased to impart not only the gospel of God, but our own souls. How do you impart your soul to another person? Actually, this has been the goal of friendship in every age. Aristotle talks about this, that your very closest friend is like a second soul. So, people all over the world have recognized that sharing your soul, imparting your soul, is one of the most precious, treasured things in your life. And greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his soul for his friends. I know we always translate it life nowadays, but the word there is soul. He lays down his soul for his friends. When we are joined to the life of the Son of God, when the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, joins us to the life of God, then we are joined to one another as well. And so as we are joined to Christ by his spirit, the same spirit that has joined you to Jesus has also joined me to Jesus and therefore has joined us together so that we share not only the gospel of God, but our very souls. Now, very imperfectly, with much weakness and frailty, with sin and hopefully then repentance, we impart to you our own souls This is how Paul and Silas and Timothy walked among the Thessalonians. It is how we as your elders seek to walk among you. And we need to see this in the light of Christ's coming and ours in verse 1. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, where where this passage is going, Paul will highlight how God calls you into his own glorious kingdom. So you are called into, you are, you enter his kingdom through God's call. But he begins the section by speaking of his own coming to the Thessalonians. Now, there's lots of different words that Paul uses to refer to comings. This word simply means entrance. It was used in the book of Acts to refer to the entrance of Jesus in the days of John the Baptist. Jesus entered his public ministry when he was baptized by John. Here Paul uses it to refer to the entrance of Paul and Silas and Timothy as they came to the Thessalonians, bringing the gospel of Jesus, imparting the gospel and their own souls. You know, you remember how our coming to you was not in vain. The coming of Christ and the coming of his gospel has a very full meaning. Christ came in the flesh in his incarnation. When the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary, she conceived and bore a son. Christ came and was revealed to Israel in his baptism by John. Christ came to Jerusalem as the son of David on Palm Sunday. And in his death and resurrection and ascension, he came to the Father. 
And in the coming of the Holy Spirit, he came to his people when he said, I will not leave you as orphans, I myself will come to you. He came to us in his spirit. And he will come again to judge both the living and the dead. And that's where, there are, in that sense, there are many comings of Christ. We oftentimes talk about two, his first coming and his second coming. There are many comings. Indeed, every time our Lord Jesus draws near to you in the midst of your affliction, it is proper to speak of his coming, because that is what he is doing. He comes to his people by his Spirit. And so the coming of Paul and Silas and Timothy as they entered Thessalonica was truly the coming of Christ to the Thessalonians. Now, perhaps it was partly through thinking about that, but I was, I was speaking with a young person recently who was deeply troubled in soul. He wanted very much to draw near to God, but he felt like he was outside looking into the room where God was, where God's people were, and he didn't know how to get in. But as we spoke, as he calmed down, a measure of peace returned to his face. I looked at him and said, Welcome to the room where God dwells with his people. This person has been a Christian his whole life. But there are times in your Christian life where you're feeling outside. But This is what Paul means when he says we share not only the gospel, but our own souls. Because I've had other conversations with that same young man who that didn't work. But I I know what the difference was. In previous conversations, I was working so hard to try to help that I was so focused horizontally that I wasn't entering the room myself. But in this conversation, I had entered the room. And so my soul became the bridge whereby this other person could enter the room. Now, here's the thing. That's only a temporary bridge. My soul cannot bear that weight. But yet that is what we are called to do in sharing, imparting our own souls that we are called to, to be the vehicle through which other people can draw near to God. Now, my soul can't bear that weight. It won't work long term. Only the grace of the Holy Spirit can bring a person into that room and keep a person in that room. But notice how Paul works this out in chapter 2 because this is what he's talking about when he starts with our boldness in preaching because it is to please God who tests our hearts. Paul's point about how it's only if we are drawing near to God, it's only if we are more concerned with what God thinks of us than what others think of us that we can do this. And then how this works out in verses 5 through 8, our gentleness among you like a nursing mother. And verses 9 through 12, our labor and toil like a father with his children. Because Paul's central point is that we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Ed Welch has a great book, When When People Are Big and God Is Small. This is what happens every time we're more concerned with what others think of us than with what God thinks of us. We start to approach situations as though sort of how, how what people think of is what really matters. When people are big and God is small, 
we may just wind up going along with the crowd and doing whatever people want us to do. When we fear man, we don't actually love each other well. Now, fear of man can go all sorts of ways. Sometimes fear of man leads us to do whatever they want so that they'll like us. But fear of man can also take the, result, take the form of making a big stink to show we don't care what anybody thinks of us. But what do those two things have in common? Everything is focused horizontally. Everything is focused on what do they think I got to do that? What do they think I won't do that? Fear of man drives both. But Paul says, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, we hear the story in Acts 16. Paul had come to Philippi, and in the first few days he was there, he baptized Lydia and her household. And then there was the slave girl who, who had a spirit of divination who followed him around saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You might think, hey, yeah, Paul, that's good advertising. You know, sort of, why not let her keep saying that? And she kept doing this for many days. And we're told that Paul became greatly annoyed. Now, why was he annoyed? Well, what does Paul say here? Verse 3, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. And what is the spirit of divination all about? Error, impurity, attempts to deceive. So the fact that she happens to be telling, quote-unquote, the truth is not helpful. What partnership hath Christ with demons? Whatever the spirit of divination is up to has nothing to do with Christ. And so Paul commanded the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it left her. Not surprisingly, her owners get upset about this because now they can't make any money off her. So they had Paul arrested, beaten, thrown into prison. And that night, while Paul and Silas sat in the prison praying and singing hymns to God, the prisoners were listening to them. A great earthquake shook the prison, and everyone was freed from their bonds. But rather than run away, Paul and Silas and all the other prisoners simply stood there. Remember what we saw for many of the Psalms? Don't just do something, stand there. Stand there. And do what? Sing the praises of God. What's Paul doing? Singing the praises of God. He's now free from his bonds. He could run. No, I'm not running. And all these prisoners who, at least prior to that night, probably most of them were not believers in Jesus, they're standing there too. So powerful was their song that all of the other prisoners simply stood there. Now, it wasn't because the music was so catchy it wasn't that the lyrics were so awesome. It was the power of the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as preached by Paul and Silas, as sung by Paul and Silas, as lived by Paul and Silas, so that there in the prison, they were sharing not only the gospel, but their own souls with these prisoners, that somehow in those few hours, those prisoners also stood there. When they could have run, when they could have escaped, they stood there. And so when the jailer saw them standing there, he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
I have no, I, mean, I, I barely know anything about what you believe, but what I've just seen, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This is what it means, what we saw last time in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, for the gospel to come not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul didn't just show up and preach some fine-sounding sermons. He preached and he lived those very words as he imparted his soul to those who heard. As... Paul puts it here, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, what does Paul mean by saying we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel? Now, we often focus on Paul because he, he's the easy one. You know, Jesus calls him directly on the road to Damascus. So obviously Paul was approved by God directly to be entrusted with the gospel. But Paul says we. He's referring to himself and Silvanus or Silas and Timothy. And undoubtedly others too, but at least here that's where his focus is. And so it's worth noting where these other two men came from. Acts 15 refers to Silas as one of the leading men among the brothers in Jerusalem, and Acts 15.32 adds that Silas was himself a prophet. Uh, and a prophet, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean somebody who just goes around predicting the future. It's somebody who proclaims the word of the Lord. In fact, in Acts 15.32, it says that Silas, as a prophet, encouraged and strengthened the brothers in Antioch with many words. So he is a preacher. He is one who proclaims the word of the Lord. So Silas... Uh, had been, he, he, he had been one of the prophets and teachers in Jerusalem, uh, so he appears to have been just ordained in the ordinary way as a prophet and teacher in Jerusalem. Then Timothy is mentioned in Acts 16, the, the, the few verses later, where when Paul and Silas arrived at Lystra, he's the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and Paul was very impressed with Timothy, and so he took Timothy along when they left Lystra, and it's only a few weeks later that they arrive in Philippi, and then, a, and then a, shortly after that, to Thessalonica. Yeah, in that order. Um, so it's not clear that Timothy has actually been ordained yet. Has, is, is he coming along as an intern? Is he coming, or did they ordain him before he left? We know from First, first and Second Timothy that Timothy was ordained by the laying on of the hands of the eldership, and that Paul was part of that eldership, because at one point Paul uses the plural to describe it, and at another point the singular. So we know Paul was there, and there was a council of elders. But the point here is that Paul includes Silas and Timothy in this statement. We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. For Paul, that was a direct God-appointed role. But for Silas and for Timothy, it was the ordinary, through the church, calling them as pastors, teachers, elders, whatever, whatever term you want to use, prophets. When a man is set apart to the gospel ministry, he is being given as a gift from Christ to the church, entrusted with the gospel, called to speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And this is the hard part. Fear of man can creep into a pastor's heart just as easily as anybody else's. 
And that happens to me, where I, when I start to realize, oh, I'm just trying to fix things. I'm not actually fearing God right now. It, and this is where the fear of man gets an ugly backside, because you can turn fear of man on its head, and it's still fear of man. Which is better, to be driven by what everybody thinks of you, or not to care what anyone thinks of you? Neither. They're both fear of man. The focus is still on people. And as Ed Welch puts it, in when people are big and God is small, regarding other people, our problem is that we need them for ourselves more than we love them for the glory of God. The task God sets for us is to need them less and love them more. And this is what Paul then describes in the way that he talks about their ministry among the Thessalonians. Verses 5 through 8. Our gentleness among you was like a nursing mother. For we, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own souls, because you had become very dear to us. A faithful preacher will not flatter his congregation. Uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy call God as witness that they did not have a pretext for greed. When he says, nor did we seek glory from people, glory could have a reference to fame. It could also refer to financial support. It's also, it's the, idea, the idea of glory is the idea of weightiness, so th- throwing weight around. And, uh, but also, and the reason why many think financial support's an idea here is because though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, throughout his epistles, Paul will highlight his own insistence on preaching the gospel without charge, even as he urges churches to make sure that their own pastors are provided for. Paul recognizes that the the laborer is worthy of his hire, but at the same time, he sees that his own calling as apostle to the Gentiles requires him to make a sacrifice that not everyone needs to do. And, And notice the image he uses here. We were gentle among you, like a, a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, in, in, in our day, we, we, use, we, we, we refer to this as a nursing mother. Uh, it's worth noting, it's, it's just the word nurse. Uh, and this is partly because in the ancient world, and indeed up until recently, it was very common for children to be nursed by someone other than their mother. So, uh, but... I'm perfectly fine with the ESV's nursing mother, and I'll use it just because in our culture, that's the way we tend to think. Um, but it's, it is worth reflecting on because in terms of, of gentleness and tenderness, there is no image like it. I mean, a nursing woman is quite literally giving of her own substance in order to give life to another. And when Geneva was born and Virginia lay near death in the, in the hospital. She was unable to nurse. And so another woman in the congregation took Geneva home and nursed her, giving her of her own substance to give life to another. So that is a powerful image. It's a very tender image. And it's one that Paul uses to refer to how he and Silas and Timothy cared for the Thessalonians. And it's not just through their preaching, but through their lives. 
through their souls. So being affectionately desirous of you, because we loved you. This is, this, is the, this is precisely what Ed Welch is getting at when he says, need them less, love them more. We loved you, being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very souls, because you had become very dear to us. I, I don't know how to say this in my own words, so instead I, I, will, I will quote from a, a talk that my wife gave in China. Virginia said it this way. I said yes, because I thought it was what I was supposed to do. Even though my first thought was, no, this is not what I do. In fact, going to China with my husband is not what I do, not what it means leaving my children behind. God made me a woman. This much is obvious. God also made me a wife. This too is clear. He also made me a mother. And here I want to stop. This seems like it should be enough for me to handle. And if I think about it and be realistic, this is all I can handle, though I can't even handle this on my own. So why am I here? Because God created us to be more than this. He created us to need each other, to bear one another's burdens, to build up one another toward faith and good works, to show forth his glory to all men, to show hospitality to the stranger, to care for those afflicted, to wash the feet of the saints. Now, these are things that all Christians are called to be. And as, and what what Paul and Silas and Timothy are doing, and indeed what we as pastors and elders are called to do, is to lead in this. But it's not that we're the only ones that do it. Not only to share with you the gospel of God, but to share with you our very souls. And the result should be that we become a community that is characterized by sharing our souls with one another. And therefore as we've seen already in Thessalonians, that goes out from there and it, that, so that the, it just continues to overflow. It, it, when, it's, when it's sharing your souls in what, the way that Paul's talking about, it doesn't become a clique. It doesn't become an ingrown little group. It continues to go forth to the ends of the earth. And Paul then reminds the Thessalonians of their own experience. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We know from Acts 18 that Paul was a tent maker. So his trade would be in demand in a port city like Thessalonica, where there were lots of travelers. And his workshop undoubtedly functioned as a discipleship center. Working with your hands would leave your mouth free to speak of the gospel of God. Being new in town, Paul would need to make connections with suppliers, customers, tradespeople. And you just start making disciples wherever you are. And so he calls them as witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. And Paul never claims to be sinless, so undoubtedly when he sinned, he would repent. Because how can you be holy and righteous and blameless when you've sinned? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then here the imagery shifts because in terms of gentleness, he had spoke of breastfeeding the Thessalonians as a nursing mother. But in terms of his labor and toil, he now speaks of being like a father with his children, exhorting each one, encouraging each one, charging, commanding each one. The true care of souls, the true nurture of disciples requires both the tender nurture and the exhortation. 
And Paul insists that he and Silas and Timothy have been doing this. They are both nurturers and exhorters. Some people today seem to think that in order to be good at nurturing, you'd have to have women serving as elders and pastors. That's not how Paul talks. He uses the feminine imagery of the nursing mother and says, and that's what we are like. He challenges men to be better nurturers and not just sort of emphasize the exhorting side of things. Think of what it means for a nursing mother to give of her substance to feed another. Will you give your soul in that way? But also, you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Uh, we, we keep seeing how hope is the central theme in First Thessalonians. Paul may not use the word hope right here, but the, the future dynamic of the gospel is central. We walk in the present in a manner worthy of God because God calls us into his own kingdom and glory. It's the same theme we saw last time in chapter 1, verse 10, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now that same theme is restated in the language of God's kingdom and glory. Paul refused to seek his own glory because what matters is the glorious kingdom of God. And God has called you into his own glorious kingdom. The glorious kingdom of God is both a present reality, because Jesus the King sits at the right hand of the Father, but also a future reality, because the King will return. And his call to you is to live as citizens of his heavenly kingdom in the midst of a world that doesn't acknowledge the King. And that's why Paul exhorts, encourages, and charges us to walk in a manner worthy of God. If you have been called into this glorious kingdom, then live as citizens of this kingdom. And notice how personal it gets. We exhorted each one of you. Certainly, Paul would have preached publicly, but he also exhorts one by one. Now, the other day, Jacob mentioned that something he would like to see was, oh, could, could you perhaps visit people at their work? And I was like, yeah, actually, that was something I did 20 years ago when I was first at Michiana Covenant, and then it sort of dropped off my radar. But so, actually, given the way my schedule is right now, I, I do have time. So, if you would find this helpful, um, I want to take the time to encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And so, if you'd like me to come, if uh, depends on your boss, obviously, but you know, if. If your boss is okay with me just sitting there for the afternoon, I'd be happy to do that. Or if it's just coming, coming to your workplace and having lunch in the lunchroom, that would be fine too. But the advantage of being in your workspace, and I realize you know, some of you work at home, it's like, well, you know, you could, you could come. Um, but, but if it would be, I mean, it, it can be helpful. I, I know from the, from the times that I did this, it was really helpful to just sit there for an afternoon and actually since... The guys I was visiting, they, they, had, they had things they had to do, and sometimes I couldn't be there for that. So I can do work on the side. I can work anywhere. So, but basically, just and I don't have to get in your way. I can just be a fly on the wall. Um, but, but whether it's having lunch in your space, because that's where seeing you in your native habitat helps me to see 
something of what's going on in your life and how I can uh, exhort, encourage, and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God as you live before him in his kingdom. So let me know if you'd like to do a, you know, bring your pastor to work day. Um, but, um, but just that's, but that's part of what we are called to as God's people to live and walk faithfully in the manner worthy of his calling. So let's pray. Lord, help us because we, we need your grace and we need your mercy and we need the mighty power of your spirit to, to walk faithfully before you. So help us to walk in a manner worthy of, of you who have called us into your own kingdom and glory. For Jesus' sake, amen.